If you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one around you somewhere. Page 871 is where we're going to be, so be sure and grab that and, and flip to that page. And the reason is because what we do in here pretty much every week is uh, we just open up the Bible. So we've been going through Luke for a while. We'll finish that by the end of the year. And we open up the Bible week by week and we just make our way verse by verse because we believe that the Bible, God's Word, is what changes us. As the Holy Spirit takes what He inspired to be written and He applies it to our lives, that changes us. The renewing of our minds week by week by week by week. And so that's what we do. We just open up the Scriptures and we really seek to ask the questions, what does this say about God? What does this say about us? And then what does that mean for my life? And as you're studying the, the Bible on your own, if you're reading it at home and you're trying to understand passages, that, that's really just a good principle to kind of study Scripture with. As you're reading through something, you're trying to understand it. Ask yourself, what is this saying about God? And what is this saying about me? And then what does that mean for my life? So those are some good questions. What does it say about God? What does it say about me? That's just kind of a way to, to help you as you're studying through Scripture. But getting back to the rant, to the ranch here, what we do just going through uh, week by week, verse by verse, is called expository preaching. That means that week by week we come to some verses that are just comforting, life-giving, infused with grace. Just We love to read them, we love to hear them, but that means since we can't dodge anything also week by week, we come to places where maybe it's a little bit of a harder word to hear. It might get up in our grill a little bit more. And this morning, we, we kind of have a little bit of both. We've got a section that should be unbelievably encouraging for followers of Christ on the one hand. But then beat us up a little bit maybe on the other hand. And yet, grace abounds. Even for those who failed the commands that Jesus is going to put for us today, grace abounds. It knows no ends. It knows no bounds. He lavishes His grace on His people. He loves His people. And so we'll be reminded, even as it beats us up a little bit, for our own good of the grace of Jesus, for those that are His, for those who are constantly failing, don't have it together, or broken, but we're willing or hopefully failing forward into the arms of our merciful Savior. And that's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church where it's okay to not be okay. Where it's okay to be broken because we all, all are. We're all sinners. We don't have it together. But we rally around one another and push one another on to faith and good works, reminding ourselves all the time of the grace of Christ that He lavishes on His people. And so Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48 that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to begin with that comforting truth for those that are in Christ. Okay, and, and it's a, a truth that kind of undergirds this entire section. And then we'll you know, roll into two major commands of Jesus based upon that truth. And so what is this truth? What is this truth that we're talking about that undergirds all this? It's the truth, and we've been singing about it all morning, it's the truth that Jesus will come again. That Jesus is going to come again. And so let's read this section together and then we'll come back and, and chat a bit about it. Luke chapter 12, picking it up in verse 35, page 871 around you. Just a little bit of context here. Jesus has been teaching through parables. He's warned them of the foolishness 
of chasing after material things for satisfaction. He's warned them of the faithlessness of continual worry about material things. And so now he's going to challenge them to, to live in light of his return. Because readiness for Christ's return is the antidote for greed and worry. When we're thinking about Christ's return, that's the antidote for greed and worry. So let's read it together. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Say, <clears throat> excuse me. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so this entire section is built upon the foundational truth. All right, we'll, and we'll, di we'll dial into all that in a minute, but it's built upon this foundational truth that Jesus will come again. All right, that the second coming. See, there's, there's 260 chapters in the New Testament. 318 times it talks about the return of Christ in those 260 chapters. So statistically, one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament is about the return of Christ. Okay, this is not some, maybe this is a foundational truth. Jesus will come again. And if you're a believer, be encouraged by that. Be hopeful about that. Be comforted. This is good news. This is why the Bible ends with the words, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is our hope. We're looking forward to this. Like Samwise Gamgee in The Lord of the Rings. You ask Gandalf, are all the sad things going to come untrue? That's what's going to happen when Christ returns. And so getting a you know, 30,000 foot view of the Bible, of the universe, of life, just the reality of existence that, that, that we live in, the meta-narrative across all time, it's a story of four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. 
And so you've got an eternal, good, and gracious God who of His own volition and choice chose to create a universe, galaxies, and in one of those galaxies, in one little star system, on one little planet, He chose to create people. The only thing in all of existence that was made in His image. And He created them for life and fellowship and worship and walking in unity and harmony together. But man rebelled against this. And in rebelling, brought what's called the fall. This is when sin entered the world. So you've got creation. And you've got the fall. And this is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And then the whole rest of the Bible is about the redemption of man that God has purposed to accomplish through Christ. And then a coming restoration where everything that's gone wrong will be made right. And so you go through the whole Old Testament looking at this redemption and you've got all these foreshadowings and types and prophecies of this one who's to come and going to make everything right of this long awaited Messiah. And so you go through all of the law and the writings and the prophets, all of this is laid out there. And then finally, Jesus shows up, New Testament, born of the Virgin Mary and says, I'm here. The one that you've been waiting for. Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 53, on and on and on we could go. I'm here. The one you, I'm here. That's me. Those are talking about me. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And then here's what Jesus does. He lives a perfect, sinless life that we've all failed to live because we're all sinners. We're all broken. We're all jacked up. We can't live the perfect, sinless life that God demands. Because He's holy. And so Jesus came and He lived it for us. And then He died willingly, laid down His life as a substitute, taking on all the wrath of God against our sin, my sin, that I, the, the wrath and the punishment I deserve for my sin, undeniably, absolutely deserve. It was diverted from me and it was put on Christ and He bore it in my place. And then three days later, He kicked down the door of death, walked out of the grave in victory over sin, over death, over hell, over the grave, over Satan. Hung out for 40 days in a physical resurrected body, ascended back into heaven where He awaits right now to come again and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. All these former things will be gone. New things have come. Behold, He's making everything new. And the dwelling place of God will be with man again. And so in Adam, if you think about Genesis 1, in Adam, paradise was lost. In Christ, paradise will be restored. This is our hope. He's coming again. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Jesus will come again. He will restore paradise. And so throw away the lie that is the end times fanaticism that you see on TV. Quit your job. Get a bunker. Prepare for Armageddon. Throw all that away and replace it with hope in the faithfulness of God. In His grace And in His goodness and in His justice and in His Word, He's coming to make everything right. Praise the Lord. Our faith will be sight 
our hope will be fulfilled. New heavens, new earth, paradise, restored the dwelling place of God with man. It's what we've been waiting for, the consummation of all things. He's coming again. This is good news. So we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And He's coming, though, at a time we will not expect. When we least expect it, in fact. That's why verse 40 says, You also must be ready for the Son of Man, and that's a designation Jesus uses of Himself, going back to Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse 46, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. And so there's been people predicting when Jesus would come ever since Jesus said, I'll come again. And they all have one thing in common. They're all wrong. Every single one of them has been wrong. In fact, whole new religions have been birthed off of this. The Jehovah's Witnesses, that's how it began with Charles Taze Russell predicting this. We'll do that another day. <laughs> the people have been predicting this and they've all been wrong. So, so when will Jesus come again? Here's when he'll come again. When we least expect it. So if you're expecting it, guess what that means? He's not coming. Right? When we least expect it is when He will come. So it, it could be today. It could absolutely be today. Most of the world, we're not. It could be 10,000 years from now. It could be more than that. We don't know. And so the question we have to ask then is how are we to live until then? Until He comes again and all this, I mean, everything that's gone wrong is going to be made right. Until that glorious day that we hope for and we long for. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Until then, how do we live? How do we live between the times of His first advent when He came as a baby and His second advent when He comes as a warrior king? How do we live between those times? And Jesus describes how we are to live for us in Two parables that we've got before us this morning. And the first one, the major idea in it, is to be ready. It's to be ready. So if you're taking notes, number two in your notes will be Jesus will come again, so be ready. Look at verse 35 with me again. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I, <clears throat> I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so the whole idea here is that followers of Christ should prepare for the Lord's return by living in a way that honors Him when He comes to assess our walk with Him. Now, I loved mine and Sarah's wedding. All right. 
It was bootleg as all get out. I'm not kidding. Baker forgot to make the cake. I think I've told you guys this before. The photographer showed up late. The videographer almost got in a fight with the photographer. And then the limo driver had to stop for gas. <laughs> with us in the limo. So his bootleg is all get out. But it was all good because the main point of a wedding is getting married. And I was marrying my best friend who just so happens to be smoking hot. And godly. And young men, that is a combination right there. Find best friend, beautiful and godly, marry that girl. Marry that girl. And so wedding days can be totally kind of bootleg or they can be totally extravagant. Back in the day, they were absolutely extravagant. And dancing and feasting would go in way into the night, sometimes past midnight. And so the servants at home had no idea when the master might return. It might be midnight. It might be in the second watch of the night. It might be in the third watch of the night. But whenever it was, the servant was to be ready. He was to be ready. And so an ancient way of describing this um, readiness is to be to gird up your loins, okay, to be dressed for action because they wore these big robes. And so you take the robes and tuck them into your belt so that you could run around and not step on your robe and, and fall so that you could be you know, able to move quickly. And so they girded up their loins, they were dressed for action. And the Greek form of that word implies a constant state of readiness, a continuing action, like staying ready continually. That's how believers are to wait for Jesus. Kent Hughes puts it like this, it's not to be a passive lethargic wait, but one filled with active service, continual preparation, and joyous anticipation. And so these servants are dressed for action. Lamps are burning. Fire is roaring. The servants are ready for their master to get home from the wedding feast. And they've got a, probably got a late night snack you know, prepared for them. I'm imagining ice cream, though I know it didn't exist. They didn't have refrigerators and it hadn't been invented. But that's just how I'm imagining this thing here. And so they've got all this ready. Maybe even some chocolate syrup. Some crushed peanuts. A little whipped cream and a cherry. And they're girded up and they're ready to serve and they can't wait for the master to get home. And then he gets there. They set about serving him and then there's a crazy twist in Jesus' parable. So look at verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. And so the master was so pleased with the faithfulness he found in his servants when he got home that instead of sitting down at the table and, you know, enjoying what they had prepared for him, he tucks his robe into his belt and goes about serving them. And in this culture where Jesus is telling this parable, this wasn't just like, oh, that's a pretty neat little twist to the story. This was unheard of. No master would ever dream of wearing a servant's clothing and inviting his servants to come and have his bowl of ice cream. Masters would not make themselves nothing by taking the form of a bondservant. But this was no ordinary master. This was our Lord Jesus. 
who is Philippians 2 tells us, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what would be unthinkable for any other master is the very heart of our Savior's mission for the world. Philip Ryken puts it like this. He was the master of the universe, the Lord of all creation, creation, yet he had come to serve his people and by serving them to set them free. Friends, see the kindness of God towards you. Like personally, towards you. This parable of the waiting servant could only be told by the kind of God who would wear the weakness of His people by taking on the flesh of their humanity. Who would strip off His robes to wash the feet of His disciples. Who would serve as their substitute by dying on the cross in their place for their sins. One who would not only write himself into the story of this parable, but write himself into the story of eternity. Like he entered the world in the fullness of time. Jesus became a man. So that he could rescue his people from sin. And so friends, in light of his goodness, in light of his grace, in light of his kindness towards you and his imminent return, stay awake. Be ready even into the second or third watches of the night. We don't know when He'll come. He'll come when we least expect Him. There's been almost 725,000 days since Jesus left this world. And each day that goes by, we're one day closer to when He will come. Stay awake. Be ready. He will come again. And so the question you have to ask then is, are you ready? The call here is to be ready. So are you ready? When he divides wheat and tares, when he divides sheep and goats, when he divides heaven and hell, are you ready? Have you received the free gift of salvation that he offers to anyone who will believe? Not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what Christ did. Have you received that? That's the starting point of readiness. When you die or when Christ returns, there will be no second chance. Are you ready? Friend, if you're not, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is holding open a gift for you. Take it. Surrender to him. He's calling you, sinner, come home. Come home. Will you be ready when he returns? For those of us who are followers of Christ already, Still, will, will you be ready? When Jesus returns, will He find you faithful or unfaithful? And that's the question that the next parable would have us ask. Kind of the exhortation of the next one. And so let's look at it together as well. Verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us all, for us or for all? And the word said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? 
Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And so if the first parable, the major idea was Jesus will come again, so be ready. The second one, the idea is Jesus will come again, so stay faithful. And so number three in your notes, Jesus will come again, so stay faithful. Verse 42, who then is the faithful and wise manager? And so what's going on here is Jesus would often teach the multitudes and then sometimes he'd pull back and he would teach just his disciples. And so Peter, who's like the spokesperson, is like, hey, which one is this, Jesus? Are you, telling, are you talking to everybody or are you talking just to us? And Jesus doesn't answer the question directly because the main principle he's trying to drive home here is the kind of faithfulness we're to live in. And so he rolls then into another parable to, to teach. Well, you've got a master, okay, Jesus again, and he's away, and, and the servants are awaiting his return, but until he returns, he's appointed one of the servants to be a steward. Now, I want you to make sure you're on the steward is still a bondservant. Okay, he's still a bondservant. But he has a responsibility to steward the rations that the master has provided. And if he does so, and he does so well, basically he'll get kind of a promotion. Look at verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing, giving a portion of food at the proper time, so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And so in one sense, this principle applies to everyone because it's all about stewardship. All right? It's all about stewardship and even a warning against the abuse of power. Verse 45, but if that servant says to himself, my master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know. And so it's all about power. It's all about authority. All of this is a stewardship. Power and authority are stewardships that we will have to give an account for. And so those of us who manage people at work, authority matters. And you will have to give an account for how you speak to your coworkers, how you speak to your employees. God cares about your words. God cares about your motivations. God cares about your actions. Authority matters. It's a stewardship. Moms and dads, authority matters. You've been entrusted with children by God as a steward. They are not ultimately yours. That's what we say every single time we do a parent-child dedication. These children are a gift to us to steward for His glory. So they're not ultimately ours. We are to steward them, and the call is to steward them well. Now we cannot do any particular things to guarantee that they will grow up to love the Lord. What we can do is we can lay all the kindling around them that we can and beg God to ignite it. 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 
It's rekindling. I put a video on Vimeo last week about resources for young parents with younger children of, of kindling that you can help lay around your kids. So you can find that on the Providence Facebook page. And so in one sense, the stewardship that Jesus is speaking of here applies to everyone. I mean, chapter 12, this whole, we're in it, but we've been going through it for a couple of weeks. This whole chapter has been Jesus challenging people to make wise use of their material possessions. And so last week we had the parable of the rich fool. We saw the example of the raven and the lily. Had a word about putting your heart where your treasure is. And in all of these things, Jesus is teaching us what to do with what we have. And here again, this example of a faithful steward, Jesus is talking about food and household possessions, calling us to be faithful stewards. Because we're not the masters of the house. God is. We're stewards of what He's put in our charge to bless others with. You and I don't own anything. We steward His stuff. So the idea of ownership, strike that from your mind, replace it with the idea of stewardship. Your time is to be stewarded. Your money is to be stewarded. Your energy is to be stewarded. Your home is to be stewarded. All these things are given to you by God for His glory. And to be used to make more people who worship and enjoy Him. Who make more people who worship and enjoy Him. Who make more people who worship and enjoy Him. Leading others to do the same. And we use all of these good gifts in a way that makes the world see that our hope is not in our money, it's in Christ. Our home is not what is most ultimate in our affection. Christ is. Our job is not what's most um, ultimate in our affection. Christ is. Even our families, as awesome as they are, are to be loved and stewarded in a way that still people know that they're not what is most ultimate in our lives. Christ is. Now that means we live out in our family a certain way and we live out in our jobs a certain way and we live out in different areas in certain ways to point to the authority and goodness of Christ. And so it's a stewardship. And so we've got this giving and feeding. The steward is to be a blessing to others. He's not to hoard it all for himself. Right? He's to steward what he's been given. He's to give. And so this is a call for all of us on the one hand. Steward well. Don't be abusive. Steward well. But on the other hand, this parable is talking about a steward who's been in charge of a household. And this is the exact responsibility that Jesus gave to his apostles. Because the New Testament describes the church as the household of God. With the apostles serving as its stewards. And so as stewards of God's household, the apostles were responsible for the feeding of the people with the word of God. And then in time, the sacred trust was entrusted, right, passed on to other men. Pastors and elders 
of the church. And so while the faithful steward applies to all of us in the use of our material possessions, it does have a more specific application to leaders in the church. Pastors and elders have a spiritual stewardship before God to feed His people and lead them to good pasture. And so that's why we do what we do in here. All of our liturgy, all of our songs, all of our responsive readings, all of our praying, all of our preaching is to point you to Jesus. To drive you to feast on what God has revealed to us in His Word. And just like with all people who have authority, God cares about how elders use their authority. It's a stewardship. We don't own the church any more than bosses own their employees or parents own their children. This is a stewardship. And so all of us in this room, again, we are not owners. We are all of us in this room stewards. And all of our stewardships are temporary. And as a church, we want to encourage one another to be faithful with your stewardship. With what God has entrusted to you for His glory and the good of man. Steward well. We want to encourage one another with with that. We want to remind each other that everything we have is from God. And we will give an account for it. And we want to love one another. We want to push one another on as a family to be all that God has for us. Not just as individuals, but as a body. As the household of God. As a community. This is how God gets work done here. This is how He gets His work done on earth. And it's how we are hammered and chiseled and transformed. It happens in community. And so the call is to steward well and be found faithful when our heavenly boss walks by our our earthly cubicle. You don't want to see us shopping on Amazon Prime. He wants to see us faithful. So verse 43, blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces. And put him with the unfaithful. Literally that translates dismember. So this is a violent act. And the connotation is that those who take advantage. Those who abuse their power. Abuse the gifts of God that he's given to them. Squander their resources on themselves. Not faithful before God. And he's not talking like holding up a a line of perfection. He's not talking about those of us who, who strive to live for God but fail. But we're still striving and we're repentant when we do fail. But people who are just ongoingly, purposefully abusive, those people are not ready for Christ's return because those people are not, in fact, believers. They're the unfaithful. They're tares. They're chaff. They're goats. And they'll be placed with the unfaithful. But if you will repent and turn to Christ, and there's no person who's unforgivable. There's no person. It's just take hold of what Christ holds out to you. 
But if you don't, and He comes again and finds you unfaithful because you have not received Him, We've got this being cut into pieces, this idea of destruction, this idea of punishment. Verse 47 and 48 talk about it as well. And that servant, 47, and that servant who knew his master's will. So he's heard the gospel. He knows, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. This is indicating that there are degrees of punishment in hell. It's worse for some people. It's lighter for some people, but it's still hell. And so I plead with my friends in here who are not yet believers, trust Christ. Trust Him. Surrender. And then verse 48 concludes with this. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Friends, members of the you've been entrusted with so much. Steward it well. Steward it well. Jesus is coming again. That's not something to be scared of. Be comforted. Like your friend's coming back. Your king's coming back. Your savior's coming back. And he's going to make right all that's gone wrong. Be comforted by that. But let that also drive you to be ready. And to live faithfully. And so let's do some inspection here for a minute. I'm going to ask you some questions. I want you to think through them and then maybe at lunch discussing with some folks. Maybe pray about this at home. Do some, do some inspection here. Are you living as if Jesus is coming soon? Or are you living as if He's delayed? For my unbelieving friends, that's a question for you to ask. For my believing friends, that's a question for you to ask. Are you using your possessions and time for the good of others and the glory of God or only for yourself? Time. Man, I so much want to do this. I want to do this. But I'm going to sacrifice my want to do this for another person. Or giving. Are you sharing the grace of God with others while there's time? Or are you silent about your faith? We've been talking about five friends. Five friends. To invite for Easter, to share Christ with. That's why we're here. If you weren't here to do these things, God would go ahead and kill you and take you home. He left you here for a reason. So are you a faithful servant? Or would you be embarrassed if Christ returned and found you doing what you're doing right now? Found you doing behind closed doors what no one knows you do. And Jesus returns. High school basketball coach asked us, a group of guys, that question one time. Stayed with me my whole time. These are questions to ask. These are questions to work on. But dear friends, remember the grace of Jesus.
Grace that forgives even those of us who fail to be ready. Those of us who are believers and seeking to be ready, it covers that. Grace that covers those of us who haven't been living faithfully. Who haven't been good stewards. Who haven't lived expectantly. There's no sin bigger than the cross of Christ. There's not one. You you won't find it. And this Christ, this Messiah, this one who was to come, he has come and he willingly laid down his life on the cross for you. Individually, like you, you, he, he did it for you. This is amazing news. This is good news. Christ has come to save and save the lost, to save sinners among whom I was the chief. Is what the Apostle Paul says. And so drink this good news, this forgiveness, this grace that's lavished from a heavenly good Father and King. He lavishes His grace. So drink this in, know its goodness, and then live for Him. Motivated by grace. And like Spurgeon said, always acting just as you would hope to be acting if He were to come. Because he will. So be ready and stay faithful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long for you to come again. The world is broken, and you've come to deliver us from the slavery of sin. We long for you to come again and free the world from sin entirely. From death, from tears, from sorrow, from disease, from pain, from natural disasters. We long for these things. From landslides happening in Ethiopia. We long for you to come and free us from destruction and tragedy. But until you come again, Father, help us. Holy Spirit, help us to live ready to steward our lives and everything in them well. To know and live like we're not owners, but we're stewards entrusted with a sacred task because we are. Help us to that. And Father, for my friends in here who are not yet believers, would you stir their hearts? Would you be a pebble in their shoe that they cannot get away from? An unavoidable question they have to deal with. And save them by your grace. Draw them to yourself. So they wake up. Oh man. I am one. How did this happen? Save them. Please. In the name of Christ. Amen.